In this episode, I speak with Arvid Karl. After speaking with Arvid, I felt like I could run through a brick wall. I was so fired up, and you'll hear why in a moment. We touch on Arvid's amazing story as a software engineer turned writer slash entrepreneur, building his own startup to generate up to $55,000 a month, and now writing books and teaching people how to build solutions, build audiences, and bootstrap companies just like he did. It turns out engineers have got it all wrong when it comes to solving problems, and you'll hear why later on in this episode. You are listening to In Your Element. Where we uncover stories, thoughts, and ideas dedicated to helping you find your own element. Let's dive right in. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am sat virtually across from Arvid Karl. Arvid, I am so excited to have you on the show. I think it's going to be an awesome conversation. We're going to geek out about a ton of things later on. So why don't we start by giving a brief introduction into you and whatever is exciting you at this point in time? <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me. I'm also really much looking forward to the conversation. Um, introduction. Uh, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard because I don't like to really... Uh, attribute any any labels to myself but i think it's easiest to say that i used to be a software engineer only and then at some point i noticed that i'm actually an entrepreneur as well and then later i noticed that i'm also a writer and then at that point i kind of stopped to just really stop giving myself these kind of labels and i and now i'm all of these and more right i'm uh, I, I started out I guess a typical kind of nerdy career where I was a, um, a single child and I had a computer, so I didn't leave my home very often. And I learned coding quite early, self-taught engineer, I guess. I went to university for computer science and I dropped out of that because it was way too academic for me at that point. I had a couple jobs and I coded some stuff and, and built, built a couple projects and they went nowhere. So I didn't really know how to build a business. I just knew how to build a product. and um, at some point, I was I really just dove into learning about the the kind of entrepreneurial stuff as well because the the whole indie hackers community started to appeal to me because here were people actually building something meaningful and not just a product that was kind of cool where my my technical mind was intrigued but actually a business that would sustain their lives like the the kind of lifestyle business that it's often called in a kind of negative way. I really wanted that lifestyle. Just hanging out at home, building stuff and making money. Now that sounded really cool. So I I, le I just leaned into the community, learned a lot of stuff. And I built uh, finally a successful project with my girlfriend. Um, she was an online English teacher and we built a little tool for other online English teachers to be more productive. And that turned into a $55,000 a month recurring revenue company, which we sold within two years of actually founding it to a private equity company for a life-changing amount of money is what I'm allowed to say. And um, ever since then, I'm trying to give back to the community because I I didn't know that I was going to be an entrepreneur, but they taught me and they helped me. They supported me. They empowered me the whole time. And once I had some success, I could flip the script and help other founders, other people who want to be entrepreneurs or who want to at least understand how this whole entrepreneurship thing works to look into my experiences and share with them what I think, what I know, my opinions, my you know anecdotes and all that kind of stuff. I've been writing books for the last couple of years that have been received very positively by the community, which makes me eternally grateful because it's it's the best to give back 
to a community that helped you before and they actually like what you're doing. So I've been writing a lot. I just released um, my second book a couple couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, I guess. And um, I'm now working on my third because, you know, never quit a running team, I guess, or whatever they say, never, never change a running system if we go into um, computer engineering lingo here. So th that is that is why I'm at, and that's the shortest. As you can tell, I'm very verbose when it comes to this because there's so much happening in my life, right? I'm building a, an, an audience, I'm building a community. I'm in the middle of all these wonderful founders, helping them, empowering them, supporting them as much as I can. There's so many parts to this. I'm building a little software as a service business on the side as well for authors who want links in their book to never break. So there's all kinds of things that I'm doing, which is, I guess, the many small bets approach. And we can talk about that too. That's I, I'm stopping myself here because I could probably continue for another hour and we don't want we don't want that at this point. <laughs> wow. It sounds like you are so fired up about what you do, Arvid. And there's a lot that you went over there. And you know, a lot that you've done as well in the past couple of years, from your books that you've released now, Zero to Sold, as well as the embedded entrepreneur. There's just so much in that that I'd love to get into. And this permanent link business, which sounds awesome. I remember looking into this a couple of days ago and thinking, wow, that is such a good idea. Because I needed it, right? That's one of these things. I, I think in, in many ways that the there's one reason why there are serial entrepreneurs and that is that they just stumble into problems while they solve other problems. You know, like you have so many founders that build a thing and they notice something while they're building it and then they sell the business or it, it gets acquired or somebody else takes over the helm. And then the founder gets back to, okay, this is the last problem I remember that I didn't solve because I had bigger problems to solve, but now I have time for that. Then they solve that problem. And while they solve it, they see another problem. And then the second business gets, you know, it's, it's this kind of a never ending chain of like just falling into little issues, experiencing them. And then solving them for other people just like yourself. And I think, um, yeah, permanently is that problem because I wrote the book. My first book, Zero to Sold, was really just a, the whole story of Feedback Panda, the business that I built with my girlfriend. Just anything from zero, which is from not even knowing that we're going to build a business, to selling it. And then falling into the other thing, the other side of it, not knowing what to do after that. But, you know, um, we can talk about that maybe when we talk about passion at some later point, because that that was the reason um, why I started writing in the first place after we sold the business. So um, that was the first book. And within this book, which is 500 pages, um, it was 600 pages originally, but my editor really cut out 100. So that says a lot about my writing style. And within those 500 pages were a lot of links. And those links in an ebook in particular, people click on them. People want to see what, what the stuff is about. And just a week after I released the book in June 2020, the first link started to break. And it annoyed me because once links in your book start to break, people report this to Amazon. And Amazon puts this big banner on top of your book page saying, this book contains errors. And nobody's going to buy a book that like, has this big banner on top of it. So you need to fix the links. You need to supply a new version to Amazon. It takes them a week to check it out. It's a whole process. So I thought, why not just build a system that has one link for the book that always works? Like if it breaks, like right? if it breaks, then I don't need to put another book up to Amazon. I just change the link in my redirection system. That's really what permanent link is. So it's a problem that I saw in my own work and I saw other authors around me because I'm now kind of in the author scene or in the, the nonfiction writer community. And I saw other people having the exact same problem, even more than I had. Like if you ever read a book 
um, on a programming language, like the, the Ruby pickaxe book or like learning how to, I don't know, build Elixir projects, anything like this. Those books have links and links and links, right? Every library they use for anything, there's a link to the, I don't know, NPM um, system or to, I don't know, Ruby gem, whatever it is, there's a link somewhere in there. And those things change like every couple of weeks. So trying to keep a book up to date without having some sort of redirection system for nonfiction technical authors does not, it's just so much work. So that's my audience with that. People like me building somewhat technical books. And it's really cool because building for yourself and your audience is amazing because you're part of your audience. You understand like the internal dynamics of how people approach problems and how they look for solutions, how they communicate with each other, how you can later market to them, how you can figure out if the thing that you're building is good for them, getting feedback cycles, all that. It's just fun. It's just fun to build for yourself and for other people who gain something from that too. And yeah, that, that's that's what permanent link is really. Is it's kind of I, it doesn't even need to be a successful SaaS business because I'm my own customer, guaranteed with all my books. My, my first book, my second book, they all use permanent links, so I kind of need to keep it up anyway. But I do have customers, which is awesome because other people also obviously have this problem. So yeah, um, that's I just wanted to kind of rant about this a little bit because I feel serial entrepreneurship comes from this mindset of looking at problems and noting them down you might want to solve that later. And if somebody else solves it in the meantime, great. Now you have a solved problem, right? You have a solution that you can use. And if not, there's an opportunity for you there, which is kind of what my um, what my second book is also about. Like the embedded entrepreneur is about figuring out who you want to serve from the beginning. That's the very first thing. It's not like this kind of, oh, I want to build Tinder for cats or this software project for whatever, right? It's more... But like, take your idea and forget about it. And now look at the people that you actually want to help and look at their actual problems, not the one that you think they have, but the one that they say they have. And then you look into the criticality and how common they are, if there's opportunity, if there's a budget, all these little things. And then you come up with a solution, right? You don't start with your big fancy solution and then look for an audience to push it into. You look for a potential audience of people that actually exist with problems they actually have and then you solve it with them you know that's that is it's quite obvious that this is a more successful and a much more validated way but it appears to be something that you need to teach people particularly if they are engineers like us like we go through the world and we see problem solution problem solution we're solution driven right if, if you tell me you have a problem with i don't know a certain website that you're checking a couple times a day what would i think of an automated checking script that i could write for you right i'm not even asking you about why you want to check it no i i immediately tell you how to do this in an automated way and that's the mindset that engineers have that's how we're trained that's how we are kind of even socializing ourselves and i'm trying to flip this around because you know it's it's so much easier if you talk to people and Hey, many, many people tell me as, a, as engineers themselves that they, don't, they are not good at social stuff, that they're not good at talking to people. But I think that's a self-limiting kind of behavior. I consider myself to be introverted, right? Yeah, I, I don't think I am because I'm passionate. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm introverted-ish in the middle, kind of, maybe somewhere. But once I talk about stuff that really excites me, you can't stop me from talking. Because it's it's awesome, right? It's it's just something that that uh, energizes me. It's like th this whole thing about like the introverted extroverted thing, where extroverted people gain energy from being out there and on parties and stuff. I don't like parties, and I don't like like social occasions that are not with people that I enjoy hanging out with. 
But hey, once you get me into a group of engineers or entrepreneurs, that is a party for me. And that's where I get energy as well. So um, it just has to be something that you're passionate about and that you find um, a strong affinity with. And you really want to help those people, right? If you want to build a business, you better make sure that the next five to 10 years of your life are going to be spent with people that you actually enjoy hanging out with or at least communicating with. You don't have to like spend your evenings with them, particularly not if, if you're like being a built, built a B2B business somewhere, maybe with big enterprise customers. But you have to enjoy why they do what they do and how they do it. But uh, I don't want to turn this into a monologue here. So I'm just going to throw this back to you at this point. <laughs> wow, that's, that's amazing. Um, and there's a lot there that you mentioned that really resonated. The idea that as engineers, we just kind of throw solutions and we almost try to find problems for our solutions, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and something that you mentioned, which I really resonate with, is the idea that we need to start from like the audience and then figure out their problem and then, you know, get to get to the mm -hmm. solution. And like an example that comes to mind for me is just, you know, contrasting that with engineering thinking. If you get a user that says, oh, you know, like this, um, this like website takes forever to load or it's like it feels really really slow mm -hmm. you might as an engineer start digging through the code and be like oh my gosh like we've got these for loops and like this memory yeah. leaks here we've got to optimize this algorithm and you invest so yeah. much time and energy but then if you hear them they said it feels slow yeah. maybe you could fix that with a loading spinner like yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it could be something something surprisingly simple and it usually is something surprisingly simple right like putting the um, the most used functions up to the top of the page that load initially. So whatever additional weird complicated stuff you have happens later. So the most likely action can be taken quickly. There's a lot of stuff that is not even technical. It's mostly a design choice or not even that. Consider that it may feel slow to them because they're just using the wrong browser or they're loading it on mobile and you thought all your customers are using desktop computers. That is actually... A problem that I had somewhere around 2016, I was founding a company here in Berlin in Germany with a couple of friends. Um, and it was supposed to be a, a marketplace for local food because there was a lot of hipsters, a lot of foodies in the city. And the city is like three, three, four million people. And then outside of the city, the ring around the city is a lot of farmers that want to sell their really local fresh produce into the city, but they didn't really have a marketplace system to do this. So we tried to build that and failed horribly because we built software assuming that every farmer is sitting in front of their computer and doing inventory all day for our system. Have you ever seen a farmer? on their regular during their regular work they're not sitting in front of a computer they're sitting on a tractor or if if if, if you're lucky they have a phone that is not 20 years old and you know like a flip phone motorola razor or something like that you, you, we just completely ignored the actual reality of our audience because we didn't chat with them we didn't ask them okay so how would you like to use this or not maybe that's 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 actually a wrong question we would we should have asked and didn't what are you already using to access websites or what is your workflow if you want to interact with one of your, I don't know, um, couriers that you use to, to get stuff into the city or other logistics companies that are involved in your, in your system? Like, how do you currently do it? What is your existing workflow? Because that's, that's one of the things that I write about in Zero to Sold. Like, if you have an audience and you have a validated problem and um, you already have maybe an interesting solution, you still need to build that solution into the workflow that exists because nobody's going to change their life just to use your product. And then it still needs to happen in the right medium, right? So say on a, on a website or on an app or via phone, those are all different mediums, which can usually solve the problem in some capacity. 
right? And, and this all needs to be thought out before you start writing the first line of code. And obviously we wrote a lot of code first. Like we spent six months building this whole marketplace and we forgot on the one side to, that our farmers didn't have computers or had super old computers that were running like Internet Explorer 4 or Netscape stuff like that. Um, yeah, right? Um, and on the other side, we built a marketplace that didn't have a PayPal or credit card payment integration. We just thought, ah, they're going to pay via invoice or cash on delivery or something. Like it was just, we did not talk to people. We, we did not figure out, we assumed. And whenever you assume that the risk is obviously that that is a wrongful assumption, right? And you can validate or invalidate the assumption very quickly by just really communicating with people. And we skipped that part, big mistake. So um, that engineering thinking is something that I had to train myself very um, yeah, extensively to overcome. And it cost us a lot of opportunities in building things that flopped because nobody wanted to use them or nobody did use them because they were unusable to them. Mm, I think that is that is so interesting. And obviously something I'm really curious about is going back to the topic of like assumptions, have you found any good strategies to be able to, because I think it's one thing to know when you have an assumption and then to go and like uh, validate that. But do you have any strategies that have helped you to identify like assumptions? Because I think a lot of us can be blind to them. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, the, the strategy that I have is that anytime I think somebody does something a certain way, I have trained myself to immediately think, ah, oh, no. <laughs> right? I, to, to immediately consider that whenever I, I postulate something, whenever, whenever my mind feels, oh yeah, I know how this happens. I, I try to train myself and I'm still doing this. It's an ongoing effort. So obviously our brains are meant to like systematize and categorize and, and pattern match all these things that destroy reality or truth and like change it to fit whatever we conceive it to be um, or, or perceive it to be, I guess. No, I, there is no good way at doing this other than consistently reminding yourself that anything you're thinking is just one perspective of many. One thing that I do is to try to, whenever I have something that feels like an assumption, is to immediately invalidate it. That's kind of my, um, I'm trying to judo this whole validation thing where, you know, like you can't really validate anything. Validation, I, I guess that's what, um, I don't know who was saying this. I was a German like so, sociologist and he, uh, Karl Popper, I think, was, was talking about this, this uh, invalidation principle. The idea is that you cannot validate any theory you, you just only need to provide one counterexample to invalidate any theory. So as long as you find examples, examples, examples of a valid part of the theory does not mean that there's not a counterexample out there anywhere that could invalidate said theory. So the idea is try finding the counterexample instead of looking for examples that validate the, the theory. And that's what I'm trying to do. Like any anytime I think something about somebody, I try to actually find the opposite or some version of an opposite. And if that takes me a long time to find it and I can't find it after an hour or so, then the chance that it's a valid assumption is higher than if I would just go with it and not try to find a counterexample. And I know it's not a helpful theory because it doesn't really answer your initial question, but it definitely helps you in this whole validation, invalidation debacle. Because many people try to validate and they find 20, 30 people who would love to see something like this, but wouldn't pay for it. And then they try to go out there and immediately somebody says, nah, not going to pay for it. Right? It's this kind of this situation where, yeah, lots of people say yes and great to your ideas. I guess this is the whole uh, idea of the book, The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick, right? If you ask your mom if she likes what you're doing, well, what's she going to say? 
unless you have a pretty hilarious mom, she's probably going to say, yeah, great. I'm supportive. That's a great idea. Totally go for it. Right. It, but if you ask her, hey, what are you doing to solve this problem? And she tells you something that would never work with the thing that you envisioned. Well, that's your invalidation, right? There is your honest answer that you can infer from the real experiences of other people. So yeah, trying to invalidate any assumption, anything that is, is like a, in the form of um, when, when X happens, then, then Y happens, like this kind of inference thing. Whenever you have that in your mind, try to find the counterexample for that. And that can help you like cut some time out of your experimentation stage, I guess. I think that's really interesting and, and you know just kind of going back to like engineering thinking and whatnot like um, counterexamples are a really popular way of proving like mathematical theorems and whatnot and it's really interesting how like that's also a big part of just like trying to validate you know like business ideas I think that's 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 awesome um, and you know something that I would love to learn more about is from your perspective now having you know gone through many ideas um, what do you think are some key strategies or tools for finding these ideas? Like, should we keep like track of, of ideas and then go validate them? Or should we look to a specific area? We want to attack an idea, uh, a problem. Like, what is mm -hmm. your take on that? So that's just kind of why I wrote my second book, because people have been asking me this, because it's, it's the most important part of any entrepreneurial business or, or journey is to find the right people to serve and find the right problem to solve and then solve it for them in a way that actually resonates. And um, my approach, I'm trying to really cut it short, because that's, I think, like 220 pages of the actual book, um, is to, to figure out all the kind of potential future audiences that you would could serve, not, not necessarily what you would like to serve, but just all the ones that you could serve. Like for me, it's bootstrapped entrepreneurs, it's writers, it's software engineers, it's people who like coffee in the morning, people who, who really enjoy having fish in, a, in, an, uh, in an aquarium or something like all different kinds of people that I personally resonate with, right? People who like craft beer, Germans, um, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And then you make a big list of them. And then you try to filter it down to the audiences, the potential audiences that you could build for that actually resonate with you, where there's actually opportunities in the field where there's a, a lot of potential problems to solve that have appreciation of people solving it that have a budget essentially to pay for stuff and where the market is big enough for you to build a business in, but not too big for uh, to invite these gigantic competitors. And you can kind of rank them one to five, really um, each of those. And you add them up, you get a score. That's what I call the audience discovery process. And with these scores, you just look at the one with the highest score or the couple um, ones with the highest score and you just pick one. And then you embed yourself in that community. And that's this kind of audience exploration where you go into the communities of those people. You go to Reddit, you join the subreddits, you go to Twitter, you follow the influencers in the field and you start engaging with them. You go to Facebook, go into the Facebook groups that are specifically for this. Let's say, I don't know, you're, you wanna serve plumbers because you have plumbers in your family and they, they're really nice and you see, oh, there's a lot of logistics things in plumbing and uh, appointment scheduling and disaster recovery, lots of cool things. And so you try to figure out where are the plumbers? Well, there's a lot of YouTube channels for plumbers. There are actually like professional associations of plumbers and pipe fitters in every state of the United States and in most countries in Europe. And they have forums on the web. You can join those. There are plumbing communities. I think there's like plumzone.com or something. I did some research because I thought, hey, this is a cool, cool, cool idea. Um, to just look at where those communities are. There are WhatsApp and Telegram groups for plumbers. There's plumber TikTok. It's, everything exists. 
You just need to go there. Then you go there and you try to listen, you observe, you, you figure out what are these people talking about? First off, what language are they using to describe problems, right? Because everybody has problems and communities are mostly mediums of exchange of complaints or, or the cries for help and stuff. And then you actually start tracking these things that I mentioned. Like um, you go into a community, let, let's say you're going to, yeah, um, a Facebook group for plumbers and there's maybe 20,000 plumbers in there. There's a lot of gigantic Facebook groups for these kind of industries. And every day, people talk about this one problem with sourcing a particular kind of tool. So you, you have a list and you, you name the problem and then you just check how often it gets mentioned in any given week. And you track that over a couple of weeks, couple of months, and you do this for every problem that comes up. And there are multiple ways on how problems can be found with people either they complain about something, people ask for recommendations to solve something, they cry out for help because they don't know how to deal with it, or they ask for alternatives for existing tools. And, and some more, obviously, but these are the, the big four. And for each of those, you can just really write it down. What's the problem here? Why are they doing this? And how intensely is the problem felt by this person and by everybody in the community? And over time, not only do you get this list of interesting problems, but you also, by your engagement in this community, become a household name. Because, hey, if you are the guy that always asks, okay, why, why is this a problem? And I found this solution. Does this help you? Or... Um, after a couple of weeks or months in the community, you start making little content essentially and listing, okay, I found that the people are really having a trouble with this and I made a little YouTube video on this. I hope this helps you. Let me know what you think. And then you just become a voice of reason and a voice of expertise in the community. You can do that on Twitter. You can do that on Facebook, wherever you are. It doesn't really matter. Every community has different rules, obviously, on how you can kind of self-promote yourself. But um depending on that, you have different means of how to do it. And then you become a person that people think, okay, this is a legit person that actually wants to help us. And then you can start building a solution to those most commonly felt problems with your community. And that's the best part. Like essentially my second book that I wrote is a, a community built product because in, in October, 2020, I said to my Twitter following at that point, must've been like four or five, 6,000 people. I told them, Hey, I want to write a book on audience first, on how to build audience-driven businesses. Here's a landing page. I put all the ideas that I want to write about here and put a comment field on the bottom. And if you want anything else in the book, send me a message. People flocked to that. I, I got like hundreds of messages of the kind of questions that people had that they wanted me to answer in the book. So I put them into my first manuscript. Like I, I wrote the book in, in January, 2021. The manuscript was done like at the end of the month. I started on the first of the month, took me a month. And then I immediately took my book and gave it to, I think it must've been 550 alpha readers where I said, hey guys, I wrote this. You want to read this. So please tell me if this works for you. And if not, how can it be done better? And in, involve people in this editing process for months, like February to, I, I guess like April, involved 500 some people that went through my manuscript, multiple stages of the manuscript, and just told me, this is incomprehensible. Whatever you wrote here does not make sense to me. Or this is great. Keep it in or build it up. Like Put some more stuff, more examples, whatever. And that turned into a book that was essentially co-written with the readers of the book in the future. So obviously, it must be something that people want to read if they give you a suggestion to change it to a certain thing. Right? Like it's the involvement of people from the beginning, from my first idea to the, throughout the actual writing of the book, created a product 
that was extremely well received by the people who <laughs> helped create it, essentially. And that also created a lot of hype, a lot of buzz, and a lot of goodwill on launch day, which was two weeks ago on Twitter, where all of a sudden I put the book out there and the people who were either involved from the beginning or involved at some stage or just really watched me write it in public were super excited to share this with their community, with their audiences, with their friends. They bought it, obviously, because it's, a, it's, a, it's an info product. And then a couple of days later, when the first print version arrived at people's homes, they took pictures with it. And I, by the pool, reading your book or in an airplane, reading your book. I, I get these pictures like all the time and on Twitter. And they're really, really happy to be able to show me that I built something, I created something that is helpful to them. Some have already started implementing those things that I was just talking about, like the audience discovery and the, the problem discovery phases in their own entrepreneurship, in their, their own entrepreneurial journey. And that is just such a mind-blowing thing. Involving people apparently makes a better product. It's not surprising if you think about it, but if you, if you do it that way, it's, it's just a, just a mind-blowing experience. So I think that is really what makes any product, doesn't matter if it's an info product or a software as a service business or an e-commerce business better, just keeping this feedback loop with people tight from the beginning, like making sure you do something that is beneficial to them, not just because you think they need it, but because they tell you they want it. Hmm. I love that, Arvid, because it sounds like to me you've treated this this book almost like a software product where, you know, you want to get that tight feedback, the beta phase, you know, um, and it's such an interesting idea because a lot of authors, they sort of romanticize the idea of going to a cabin in the woods and retreating to write for a long period of time. And that probably has its, its time and place as well, right? Um, I think there is some value in kind of just trying to shut off from the world sometimes. And it's, it's something with writers in particular. It's, it's funny because like earlier we were talking about like the stereotypical software engineer, also reclusive and socially awkward and stuff. Yeah, why, right? Just the same for authors. Why would you need to be this hermit that sits in their cabin and writes the great American novel or whatever it's called um, in, in whatever context? I mean, for fiction authors, it makes sense maybe that they have this world building in their mind and they, they have the stories and then they just pour it onto the page. But honestly, I was I was reading a, a novella by Brandon Sanderson recently because I really like his fiction. Um, the um, What is it called? The Stormlight Archives and the, um, what's the other thing called? It doesn't matter. It, it's, it's amazing fiction. And he has this acknowledgement section in that, in that novella and he just really rattles down all the people that helped him my editors, my proofreaders, and my alpha reading group, my writer group. Like, it's, a, it's a work of many. His name is on it and his ideas are in it, but there's like 12 people that consistently check that what he writes about is cohesive, right? That it makes sense that the character he introduced at that part isn't dead before they actually say something else again in the, in the future. All of this kind of, um, yeah, how a book is written is, is often quite quite different from how the book turns out to be. Like many authors write one part first, then another part, then the introduction, then the end. Like it's, it's all over the place. And to have a group, group to actually check and sanity check your book, it, you involve people, even in fiction. And you involve them maybe even from the beginning to make sure you're not overwhelming the reader with something, right? So I, I have this really, really strong belief that uh, particularly nonfiction books in the future, they're going to be much more involved when it comes to their, their readership, 
alpha readers, beta readers, review readers, all these kind of things, they're going to be much more strongly involved with the community because it just creates a better product, quite hands down. Like if you don't need to guess or assume what your readers want to read, but you can actually ask them, why wouldn't you? Right? It's just it, at least my book and the launch that I had to me is a strong suggestion that this works because it happened twice now. The first book that I wrote was mostly half of it was blog posts. And then somebody told me, hey, this is actually cool. I want to see this as a book. And I said, okay. And then I wrote the second half and involved people in that as well. Because like I said, the most of the book was already blog posts that people had commented on and that had, uh, had made better over time. And, and then I really, really committed to this with the embedded entrepreneur and involved people like immediately from the beginning. And both of them have been large successes for self-published books by a S English as a second language author in a in a space, right? Which is me. So <laughs> I'm I'm super happy in how it all seems to go. And I think the next one that I'm writing will go the exact same way. Because why wouldn't I? It seems to work really well. I love that, Arvid. And to do this, uh, one would need an audience to be able to get feedback from. And I'm very curious. Um, do you have any particular like tips on strategies or like how, how do you build your audience? So when I started writing, maybe let's get back to that because that's a very interesting point in time. I It was November 2019 and we sold our business Feedback Panda in July 2019. And we sold it in July and then this whole transition period where you hand over your SaaS business to somebody, right? You need to make sure that they understand what to do and onboard the developers, onboard customer service agents. So a couple months after that, we were done because we built a really sellable business. So that's a whole other story. But the idea was we wanted always to have a business that runs as automated as possible and as well-documented as possible. So once we actually sold it, it was really just, oh yeah, here's the password to all the documents. Enjoy. It's kind of the whole transition process. It was really cool. Um, but yeah, I, I fell into this void because here was this business that I was running 24 seven. I mean, we just were two people in the business. We had yeah $55,000 revenue every month. We had 5,000 customers. And here it was just me and Danielle, my partner, um, manning customer support, building new features, doing the outreach, marketing, and you know ops, anything in a, in a SaaS business. We never hired anybody because it was so well built that with two of us, we could just keep, keep running. But 24-7, that means every single day, every minute, every hour was Feedback Panda for us. And then we sold it. And then all of a sudden, we had nothing to do. So my initial experiment was to try and play World of Warcraft as much as I could. Um, <laughs> that worked for a week or two. The thing is, I had played this game a lot in the past. And I had found a lot of joy and passion in the game, from the community. And it, it taught me how to speak English because I'm a German, right? And, and it, it was really good to, to get me to that point. Um, and it was fun while I did it. And then I went into software engineering and that was fun. And then I built businesses and that was fun. And now I was here at this point, having just sold my business and tried to play again, no passion, no joy. For some reason, that was all gone. And I noticed that the actual interaction with my customers, the, the joy that I got from seeing people becoming successful online teachers, that was where my passion was in the last couple of years. And no game could re replace essentially this real passion that I had. And I knew I needed to find another way to create this passion because if online gaming doesn't do it, what else would <laughs> was my idea at that point. So I thought, okay, so um, I know all these things now from running this business. Let's share it. Let's give back to the community. So I started a blog called the bootstrap founder and the, I still write to, to this day, one blog post between a thousand and 3000 words every single week. 
because I committed to this. I said, hey, I'm going to write this blog and I'm going to keep it active to just get it as big as I can, reach as many founders as I can, teach them as much as possible. And I wrote a couple of blog posts initially. I released them in November 2019 um, to, to my blog post. And then I just consistently provided something to the community every time. Uh, yeah, community didn't have much because I had 400 followers on Twitter that I had accumulated over 10 years on Twitter. You know, like this kind of stuff where you don't tweet much, you just like, and you maybe retweet once to your non-existing followers, the kind of lurking behavior. That was how I had used Twitter before that. And now all of a sudden I thought, okay, I want to reach more people. And how do I do this? Well, I, I don't think sharing blog posts is going to serve me because there's nobody to actually watch what I'm posting because I have so few followers. So what I did was actually engage people where they already were. I went to the influencers in the space, the people that I always really, really liked and um, software engineers that had built amazing businesses or entrepreneurs who had created wonderful brands and were building in public and were talking about business all the time. I followed them. I turned on notifications on Twitter. And whenever one of them said something really interesting, I went into this conversation and I looked at how can I add something meaningful to this? How can I use this as an opportunity to audition for this audience? Right? Because if somebody else has a large audience, you can go in there and, and say something really insightful from your own experience or share something related, then other people will say, okay, this person is kind of cool. Let me check out what they have to offer. And then they might follow you or they might interact with you. And then all of a sudden you have a new friend that you can follow and they say something and you engage with them. And then their followers will see you. And, you know, this kind of this audience audition as a concept is just really going to where stuff already happens and adding meaningful value to the conversation. Can be a good question, can be a good comment, can be just uh, uh, something where you say, oh, no, this isn't true. Here is the alternative. And then a conversation happens. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be a link. It doesn't have to be content. It can just really be engagement. So that's how I started out. And over time, more people followed me because I was interacting with them where they already were following other people. And then I considered, okay, how can I make their lives even better without needing to interact with them directly in a, in a conversation? And I figured out, okay, I can actually help them by give them more visibility to my own audience and to other people that might be interested in what they're saying. Somebody has a cool thing, I share it, I retweet it. Somebody has a question, I retweet it because maybe they, I can give them more reach to, into somebody in my own audience that can then help them or find somebody who can help them, right? Or somebody has a really, really shitty day. Well, they talk, they talk about it. I retweet it so that more people have the opportunity to support them and empathize with them. So empowerment became my, my the second pillar of my strategy, much more even than content. That's the third valuable content is the third pillar really for me, like engagement, empowerment, and valuable content. All three are kind of my Twitter growth strategy, but empowerment became such a big deal because it is literally the cheapest thing you could do on Twitter or in most other communities is to retweet or share somebody else's work. Like it, it costs you nothing to click off a button and it can mean the world to them. And particularly now that I have like 22,000 followers on Twitter, when I share somebody's tweet and they have 20 or 50 followers, it, most often it makes their day because all of a sudden so many eyes are on their work and they are appreciative, they're supportive, they're giving them other opportunities. Like just yesterday, somebody was asking for 
um, oh, I need a way to find to get into communities for this particular thing in, in my business. And then I retweeted that and somebody from my following said, yeah, I, I am in this industry. Let me introduce you to this person. That is the kind of this uh, yeah, synergy effects or maybe even um, yeah, the, the moments of spontaneous connection that you can do just with a retweet. And if you don't retweet it, it will not happen. You know, that's what empowerment is to me. It's using your voice. Even if you just have a hundred followers, who knows if among those hundred people, there's this one person that could help this other person be extremely successful all of a sudden. And content, creating and writing stuff, also important, obviously, to, to give people something that they can associate with you. But by no means does it have to be just you writing stuff and posting it on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, or whatever. Engagement, actual relationship building, so much more interesting. And that is a, is a growth strategy that will work for you. Because everybody else who just tweets, 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 and nobody listens to them, you don't have to compete with them, right? You, you can just really talk to people and build connection, build relationships. That will stick in their minds. Not the person that has tweets that they don't care about, but the person that helped them with something that they care about, or the person that supported them, celebrated them, shouted them out. That will stick with people. And that is, in my opinion, the most solid way of building a following, building an audience that is super engaged. And what is the result? Well, the result is um, me launching on Product Hunt this Wednesday, a couple of days ago, launching my book, even an info product on Product Hunt, which is mostly just SaaS companies anyway. And I launched uh, like two minutes after a new day began in, in the West Coast uh, where the Product Hunt servers are. And five minutes after that, my book was a number one for on Product Hunt. And for the next 23 hours and 55 minutes, it stayed there. So the whole day, the embedded entrepreneur was number one on Product Hunt because my audience that I had on Twitter and on Indie Hackers and wherever was just super happy to help and support me because I had helped and supported every single one of them in the past. That's the power of an audience. And that's why I wrote a book about building an audience-driven business because I knew that something like this can happen. It's great that the release of the book is actually proof of the strategies in the book. That's just, that is like the, the meta kind of thing that I really enjoy about this. But yeah, that, that, that's what I think everybody can do because there are so many small audiences or potential audiences that are super specific. I don't know, like I was talking about the aquarium situation earlier, right? Imagine you're a software engineer, you really like aquariums, you are good with the Raspberry Pi or Arduino kind of thing, and you can build certain things that nobody else in the industry has ever thought about because they're not software engineers, they're, they're people that come from like a fabrication or from, from a logistics background. If you have multiple things that intersect in some, some specific um, area, this area can be yours. And most people have this little thing that is so unique to them that nobody else has the exact same combination of skills and interests. And that is where you can build your audience. For me, it's software engineering, it's writing, it's bootstrapping, and it's empathetic listening, observation, and empowerment. That's where I'm at. And there aren't too many other people that are doing the exact same thing. So that's where my brand is. But for you, it could be somewhere completely different, right? For, for you, and it is for you, obviously, because you are thinking about stuff slightly differently. And that's where people like to listen to you. Different people don't have to be the same, but they're your people. And they're the people who want you to succeed. They're the people who want you to go and build something cool so other people benefit from it. So all of this is really just about making, making yourself understand that this is possible and that by, by engaging with people, you'll find your people and they will find you. 
I, that was amazing. Um, I was just listening to that and thinking, you know, the idea of engaging with people where they are and saying something that will provide value to them. That is so interesting because, you know, the past couple of weeks, I've been trying to take a step back and think, you know, how can I grow my own like presence for this, for this podcast? And I am quite famously disconnected from social media, like at a person level, I don't use it too much. And that's for like historical reasons. When I started like college, I decided I'm going to focus on like a university and stuff. And it served me well then. Um, but I've always been fascinated in social media from like a marketing perspective, like how do brands use it, right? How do you push out stories and whatnot? Um, and so now I'm kind of thinking like, okay, I think this is really important to help grow my audience. I need to make use of this, but I'm not sure of the best way to do that. And what you were saying there, like go to people where they are and audition for that audience, it really resonated. And it's something that I'm definitely gonna try doing now. Um, and, you know, I think your story is such an interesting testament to the value of not just having an audience, but having actual like fans that want to support you. Um, and you know, the, the whole essay about the thousand true fans really comes to mind as well, because it sounds like you've got a lot more than just a thousand, but, um, I think the idea is similar. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious, like, do you have any other advice or strategies for helping to provide, um, value to like, um, audiences in the way that you're doing? Hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I think if, if you start to understand that value has very, very different interpretations and, and very different definitions among people, right? To somebody, it could be valuable if you're just sympathetic, if you're just listening to them vent about their problem. And it really depends. That's, that's the kind of skill, the, the empathy that you need to understand that is something you need to develop, but you can train this. Like, it's not that we're born or with or without empathy unless you're like um, sociopathic or, or psychopathic, which is like the whole medical condition. Don't want to necessarily um, discount that, but most people can train themselves to be more aware of the, the actual emotional situation in which conversation happens. And I think it's smart what you did with social media just to stay away from it because I don't know, my experience as a, as a person using digital media, particularly text-based media, context is almost always missing from conversation. Like in a conversation like this, we have like these little micro gestures and we, we have the, you know, back and forth and we nod at each other to, to show that we agree with each other and there's no like arms folded or any kind of defensive visual um, like yeah, signal here. But in a text-based communication, none of this is clear. You don't know what the person that is texting you or, or conversing with you through text is currently feeling, how they're looking, if they're dubious, skeptical, appreciative, any of this, none of this is there. So all this communication happens on a much weirder level than actual face-to-face -face communication. So knowing that you don't know this and not immediately interpreting the most likely thing into the actual communication, that's a skill. Like knowing that the person that is that is sitting there telling you um, something mean that you interpret as mean or as like unreflected might not just be in the right mood to have a civilized conversation or might be hurt by something they just read or misinterpret something you said earlier to be aggressive. So now they're defensive. That is a skill 
that you might want to train before you dive into this kind of communication, because that will heavily impact on what valuable is for you and for your community. And the moment you start overlapping um, what is valuable for people that you want to serve and what you understand to be valuable, then your chances of actually coming across as nice, empathetic, sympathetic, a good, friendly person are much higher. So that's that's something that I would, um, I don't really have any any good way of how you could do this other than experiencing it and, and training it. Maybe there is good literature. I'm not sure about this. I don't have a recommendation here. I would actually would like to have some recommendation on that because I would like to write about it. Um, so if anyone, anybody listening has a really good idea on how to train yourself to be more, more empathetic, please uh, tell me. But I think that is a, that's a very, very big first step to take to understand what value is. And I know it's not a, not a quick hack. I know people might expect a quick and easy fix for this right now. And I'm sorry to say that none of this in audience building, in building a business, there are no cheat codes. There are no quick hacks. All of this is about consistency, about showing up, about reaching out, about listening and observing. There isn't any cheating here. And if there is cheating, it's going to be to your benefit alone. And people will notice that. And then you're going to have a problem, right? People do not like to be cheated and they will be sensitive to that. So Anything that is supposed to be long-term and permanent has to be authentic, it has to be honest, and it has to be mutually beneficial. So try and understand how people function, how they communicate, and that will give you the opportunity to talk to them on their level, the way they want to, they want to be talked to, and that will be, allow you to yeah, find the content, the value that you can give them. Because sometimes a I feel you kind of tweet is all they need, and then they follow you, and then they listen to you, and then you get to chat with them. And then all of a sudden, they become your fan because you just really were there for them when they needed you. And that is value. Mm, I think that is that is awesome. So many so so many interesting things, uh, Arvid. I, I, such an interesting conversation. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you is now that you now that you have sold this business, like you mentioned, you got like a life changing amount of money from this <laughs> and you're doing so many interesting things. What does a typical day look like for you now? <laughs> I get up whenever I wake up whenever and I, I, I get up whenever um, usually at some point um, mid morning 10 ish 9 ish uh, and then I, I just really go to Twitter I mean I have a coffee and stuff you know like breakfast uh, but I, I go to Twitter and I see what happened on uh, on the west coast overnight because like I uh, I said I try to reach as many entrepreneurs as I can so my, my community is is global I have most of the people that follow me, interact with me are in, in America, but, but the second biggest audience that I have is in India. And the third biggest might be somewhere in Southeast Asia, Australia, or, or Africa. So it's all over the place. So during my day here in Europe, I get to interact a lot with my Indian friends and my Australian friends, and then my European friends. And later in the day, I get to chat with my American friends and then my, my West American friends. Hey, you know, like it just moves as the, as the globe turns, more people interact with me from a certain location. So my whole day is kind of just me interacting with people as much as I can. Having conversations like this, like reaching out to people individually, either in a podcast or consulting, I still do that. Like I help people on their entrepreneurial journey or mentoring or writing. I, I just, whenever I have something interesting, I do it, which is one of the reasons why I actually sold the company because I wanted to have not just financial security, which is awesome. Obviously financial freedom is it just puts your life onto a whole different plane because all of a sudden you have this kind of post-economic state of mind where you don't need to make decisions that impact if you can pay rent 
or the mortgage next month. You make decisions that are like five, 10 years in the future. And that just switches your mind into a much different kind of thinking. But also to have um, an empty schedule. That's my dream week. And I know this is kind of anticlimactic having a scheduled appointment like this today, but um, my dream week is a week where I can do whatever, whenever. And I can. I mean, essentially having conversations like this is something I want to do. So I put them into my schedule, but there's nobody else telling me what to do. And that is that was why I sold. One of the reasons. Also, I was close to a burnout because it was just two people running a 5,000 customer business. Not too smart, but you know, I wrote about that in Zero to Sold and how I, I dealt with that and the, the mental mental health kind of problems there. Um, yeah, that's the reason. The reason is financial and schedule um, independence. Scheduling independence. Is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. <laughs> that is awesome, Arvid. Um, and I know we're, we're coming up to the top of the hour now. Um, before we go, I wanted to ask, you know, knowing what you know now, um, if you could put up a billboard down a very busy highway with one word or phrase, what would it be? Help people help themselves. I think that's, you know, like that, that would be the phrase. I, I think the, the, the teaching people to fish, you know, that kind of the story, th that is what I'm trying to do. And that is what I want everybody to do because there's such a, if that is your mindset approaching anything you do is that how can I use this to help people be better at what they do, be better, become better at being themselves. If that is, if that is your mindset, then we are all the tide that lifts all boats. Every single one of us. If you do something that helps 10 other people and they then do something that helps 10 other people, <laughs> it's like a multi-level marketing, but good. Like it's a Ponzi scheme for good. Because if we if we can instill the sense in the people we help that selfless empowerment of other people comes back to you. There's re reciprocation all over the place, right? I wrote all of these blog posts for months and months and months and people consumed them for free. And then I put out a book. Well, of course they're gonna buy it, right? Of course they're gonna try and help me if I help them all this time. That's just a human condition. We need to reciprocate. It's hardwired into our brain that we, you know this probably if you go out with friends and you pay for them a couple of times, unless they're shitty friends, they will try to pay for you at some point to reciprocate, right? And, and that is what you can do in, in, all, in all layers of your life, professionally, emotionally, um, in your family, in your, your circle of friends and in your community, that is what I think should be everybody's perspective because that I think just makes a better world. Mm, that, that is so powerful. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Um, so yeah, that honestly, it's been a fascinating conversation, Albert. I feel so fired up right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, just before we wrap up, if there are people out there that want to learn more about you, your story, the work that you're doing, the writing, how can they find you? Well, on Twitter. That's where I'm spending 26 hours every single day. Um, <laughs> you, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Arvid Karl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you can find the link to the Bootstrap Founder there in my blog or to my books, Zero to Sold and The Embedded Entrepreneur. But just reach out on Twitter. If you like what I'm writing, follow me on Twitter. It's, it's, it's optional. It's not mandatory. My DMs are open. You can always reach, reach me on Twitter. I'll respond to whatever's going on. If you have a question or need some support or empowerment or whatever, I'll always be there. Um, that's that's the best way to reach me, I think. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Arvid. It's been a fascinating conversation with you. I have learned so much. Oh my goodness. Um, and this, like, I've been writing some notes as we've been having these conversations. I'm thinking, I need to check that out. Like, yeah, you know, like <laughs> empowerment, engagement, like, yeah, my goodness. Like, there's so many 
nuggets um, in this conversation. And I just want to thank you for that and just, you know, for being a great conversation. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> awesome. I'm glad. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you for listening to the show. In Your Element uncovers stories and ideas of people living in their element. If you know someone who has a great story or have a story of your own you'd like to share, then get in touch and join our growing community at inyourelement.fm. I would love to see you back here for next episode. As always, keep being you. Keep crushing life and keep finding your element. I'll see you in the next one.